So friends, this morning as a person of faith, I want to reflect with you all about what it means to stand on the side of love when it comes to talking about marriage equality. As many of you know, this November, the people in Minnesota will vote on a constitutional amendment that would limit the freedom to marry, that would narrowly define marriage. And as you know as well, there are many religious voices that stand behind this proposed amendment. We are not one of those voices. We are not one of those voices. And our universalist faith suggests that God's love is so big, so vast, that it holds every single one of us, no exceptions, no questions. And our faith, grounded in that sense of love, calls us to celebrate love in all of its expressions. And so, to our gay and lesbian, bisexual and transgender friends and neighbors with us today, I say to you, we stand on the side of love with you. We, we stand with you and we bear witness to your love, to your committed relationships, to your families, to your promises that you have made one another. We stand with you today. We stand with you in that struggle for dignity and justice, in that struggle as you often face prejudice and sometimes even the fear of violence. We stand with you. And there are a couple of things I want to say this morning about marriage equality. I want to talk about the central religious practice, the central religious principle of acting with love and compassion. With love and compassion. I want to talk about the Bible and what it does and does not say about homosexuality. And I want to talk about marriage. So just a few small things this morning in the next eight minutes, nine minutes maybe. I want to start though with a story, a story from a book called Leadership on the Line. This is about a baseball player. This story is about a baseball player named Hank Greenberg who played in the 1930s and 1940s. During a 10-year period, 37 to 47, he hit more home runs than anyone else in baseball, and he was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1956. Like 85% of the people voted for him to be in the Hall of Fame. But one of his biggest accomplishments, one of his biggest contributions to the game was totally immeasurable, had nothing to do with those statistics. In his last season, he played with the Detroit Tigers, he was actually, sorry, in his last season, he was dropped by the Detroit Tigers. He'd been with them for his whole career. He was picked up by the Pittsburgh uh, Pirates, who were in last place. The year was 1947, the year that Jackie Robinson broke, into, broke the color line by signing with the Brooklyn Dodgers. All around the league, fans and opposing players treated Jackie Robinson to vicious abuse and racial insults. What you need to understand about Hank Greenberg is that he was Jewish and he had been subjected to much of this name calling early on in his career before he established himself and was respected by fans and players alike. The first day that Jackie Robinson played in Pittsburgh, he heard these racist taunts. Early in the game, Robinson reached first base and then he took a big lead and had to charge back into first 
base because the pitcher wanted to keep him close. He slid aggressively into Hank Greenberg, who was playing first base. The crowd quieted to see what would happen here. Because normally a player in Greenberg's position playing first base might say something aggressive in return, might even cast a menacing glance. But Greenberg, in a simple gesture, leaned over, gave Robinson a hand, and helped him up. Everyone, everyone noticed this act. The next time Robinson got on base, he and Hank Greenberg chatted. Greenberg told him not to pay attention to the name calling, and he invited him out to dinner later that evening. Greenberg's gesture put everyone on notice that Robinson was there to stay. A career's worth of home runs and stellar play gave Hank Greenberg the credibility to make a difference to Robinson, to baseball, to American society. The fans and his teammates took notice because of the great Hankus Pankus, as he was nicknamed. The great Hankus Pankus stood up for love and justice. With this act, Greenberg essentially said to Jackie Robinson, welcome to the game. You belong here. Now, I think that's a sacred story. It's a story that informs and shapes my faith. And while I certainly look to stories from the Bible and other sacred texts as well, this story and others can be found all around us that shape our religious lives, not just in the Bible or some sacred text. Now, I have to tell you this morning, and you know this morning, many of you, that some religious people would disagree with me on that. They would say that the Bible is the word of God, the only place for truth. It is without error. They would say the Bible clearly defines what marriage is. Never mind the great number of biblical men who had multiple wives or concubines, and never mind the ways our understanding of marriage has evolved. It was only 45 years ago, remember, when interracial marriages were illegal. And they would tell you that the Bible clearly condemns homosexuality. So here's where I want to do a real quick, short sort of history lesson with you, because this is, this is the key text that gets used all the time to say gay people are abominations and all this kind of stuff. And we need to clarify this really quickly right now, once and for all. <laughs> so maybe not once and for all, because this has been going on for a long time. But here's what I want to share with you. Based on my study of a number of religious scholars, here's what you need to understand. Here's what you need to understand. If you take one or two biblical passages out of context, and I'm thinking specifically of the Leviticus passage, the one we always hear, a man shall not lie with a man, and if you ignore everything that Jesus taught and said about homosexuality and marriage, which was nothing, he didn't say anything about those things, then it is possible to argue that the Bible condemns homosexuality. But what you would be missing if you made that argument is this. This passage in Leviticus is part of the holiness codes of the Bible. It outlined many of the ways that ancient Israelites were to behave, were to act ritually. The holiness code was intended to create a distinction between the Israelites and all other people. So in this passage, a man shall not lie with another man, the Israelites are being instructed not to follow the same-sex practices of the other religious communities around them. 
That verse is referring to the temple worship of Moloch, a god worshipped by the Canaanites and others, and to the male prostitutes who offered their services during those temple rituals. Right? This is a whole different world than we live in right now. Right? Like, we don't see this today, but that's what was going on. And the reason those homosexual acts were prohibited in this holiness code is not because they were homosexual acts per se, but because they are practices of other religions. And the commandment is clear. Worship only Yahweh. You shall have no other gods except Yahweh. So engaging in those other religious practices and by extension worshiping gods is idolatry. So it is prohibited in the Jewish holiness codes. Are you with me on that? Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. So given this, one of the authors, the biblical scholars I read, he asked, what is it then that the Bible says about homosexuality and homosexuals? And here's what he says. Wait for it. It says absolutely nothing. The people of the ancient world didn't even think in terms of sexual orientation. Instead, these ancient people recognized different sexual practices, and the Israelites said, hey, don't do those practices. We have a different set of practices for our faith community, and they weren't speaking in terms of sexual orientation. Obviously, then, David Schweitzer continues, the Bible could not say anything about same-sex relationships, about loving and mutually respectful relationships between gay and lesbian people. And certainly, it couldn't say anything about lifelong committed relationships of love or same-gender marriage, I would add. About all of this, the Bible is silent. So that's our little history lesson this morning. And I'll tell you what the Bible is not silent about. It's not silent about love. It's not silent about compassion or radical inclusion. The Bible is not silent about the great commandment, the one that Jesus and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Dorothy Day and so many others have lived and breathed, the one that says, love God or that source of life, that mystery, love God and love your neighbor, your fellow human beings. The biblical bottom line in my reading is love. It's justice and mercy. It's humbly walking in the presence of the mystery. And we make an idol of our own intellect when we think we know what the ultimate and final truth is about anything. And Lord knows this because we've used the Bible to support slavery. It's been used to justify the subjection of women, to argue that the sun revolves around the earth. And this November, we face a challenge with this constitutional amendment. There are a group of people who are trying to use the Bible, one religion, one religious text, to narrowly define marriage, to permanently limit the freedom to marry. And friends, I have to tell you, some of you know this because you're my Facebook friends, but I've been thinking about this a lot because yesterday my wife and I celebrated our five-year anniversary of being married. Thank you. We had time to reflect on the promises we made one another five years ago, how we are living into those, how we are falling short of those, how we might recommit in ways that sustain and grow our spirits. These past five years have been some of the richest years of my life. 
we have promised to walk with one another, to help each other grow, to serve our community together. Our marriage is holy work. And because it's legally recognized, our love and commitment is legitimized. It is not questioned or questionable. This matters. And all people should enjoy this same recognition. Because friends, the love between same gender couples is just as real, just as deep, just as significant and life-changing as my love I feel for my wife. And it should be recognized as such. And so, as people of faith committed to standing on the side of love in the face of discrimination and prejudice, we stand with our lesbian and gay and bisexual and transgender friends and neighbors. And I invite you to act, to act with love and compassion, to talk to your neighbors and coworkers about why marriage matters for everyone. Here's what grounds us in doing this. Here's what holds us in doing that. We believe in a love that holds all people, that reaches out to all people, that says you belong on this earth. It doesn't matter who you love. Love is what matters. It doesn't matter who you love. Love is what matters, and marriage is a sacred covenant that loving people enter. We believe in a God of all souls, not a small God of some souls. We believe in a God of all souls, not a small God of some souls. So today, as religious people, let us stand on the side of love and let us help build a new way. Let us change this national conversation. Let us establish here in the state of Minnesota that loving couples can enter that institution of marriage and marriage is better for it and we are better for it and our faith is deepened by those loving commitments we make with one another. May it be so. May we do our part. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing together about building a new way.